exciting for that reason. Uh, it's also exciting because we're going to jump into the Apocrypha again this morning, and I continue to uh, thank you for your curiosity and your grace and your uh, willingness to wander with me into these weird and strange texts. If you're not familiar with the Apocrypha, if you weren't here a couple weeks ago when I preached on Bell and the Dragon, the Apocrypha is a collection of about 20 or so books, depends on who you talk to, um, that sort of occupy a weird in-between space between Scripture and not Scripture. So if, if you talk to our Catholic friends, uh, they accept the Apocrypha as Scripture, and um, they preach from it, they read from it, they use it uh, semi-regularly, I would say and um, they, they accept it. Protestants, for reasons you don't want me to go into, did not accept that, and um, they decided that it should not be considered holy scripture, but can be useful, can be helpful, can help us understand what scripture is up to. And um, in that way, we're, we're going to read the prayer of Manasseh this morning, which is another short apocryphal text. It's like one page. You can read it in five minutes, and uh, it's been called The Gospel of Jesus Before Christ. The Gospel of Jesus Before Christ. And um, the reason for that is that it deals with repentance. And we'll, we'll, we'll look more at it, but I kind of want to just give you a little setup for this prayer because if you don't know anything about it, 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 it sort of it just needs some context. So, the legend goes, depending on who you talk to, that about 100 years before Jesus is born, there is this scribe, this, I'm going to call them a poet, and they are sitting in the temple and they're listening to the scriptures being read. And, and, and on this particular day that they're listening in the temple, uh, the, the, the people are reading from the book of Second Chronicles, and they're reading about this king named Manasseh. And Manasseh, as we'll hear in the scripture this morning, does just about everything wrong that a king can do wrong. And so as the reader is kind of going through this litany of things that Manasseh has done wrong, the reader comes to a point in the text that we'll read this morning where it says, and Manasseh prayed. And then there's this gap in the text, and it says, Manasseh prayed, gap, and God heard Manasseh's prayer, restored him to his kingdom, and then the story continues. Well, the, the person, the poet that was sort of listening to this being read got really curious, got really creative, and thought, what would make God respond to Manasseh like that? What would make God respond so quickly? What kind of prayer would that be? What did Manasseh say? And, and they were just curious. They were being creative with the text. They wanted to know and imagine something deeper there. And so they went away, and they wrote this really long, beautiful poem, and we call it the Prayer of Manasseh. It's, it's traditionally attributed to Manasseh, though he's not mentioned throughout it, but traditionally it is given to him. And this poet just kind of imagined this. And I think it's really beautiful, and I think it, it has a lot to speak to us. And so I hope, I hope you'll find something in it. And um, I, I give you that long wind-up to tell you that I'm going to read the text, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to imagine it and read it just like that poet was imagining it. 
And so, I'm going to read the text, if I can find it in my notes. There we go. And I'm going to start at 2 Chronicles chapter 33. So we're going to start in the Bible, and then when that gap in the text comes and it says, and Manasseh prayed, then I'm going to insert the prayer as that ancient poet wrote it, and then we'll read a little bit more of what happens in 2 Chronicles. So I'm kind of bookending it with the Bible and putting it in context like that poet wanted us to. So this is starting at 2 Chronicles chapter 33 and going through this story. In this way, Manasseh led Judah and the residents of Jerusalem into doing even more evil than the nations that the Lord had wiped out before the Israelites. And the Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they wouldn't listen. So the Lord brought the army commanders of Assyria's king against them, and they captured Manasseh with hooks, bound him with bronze chains, and carried him off to Babylon. During his distress, Manasseh made peace with the Lord his God, truly submitting himself to the God of his ancestors. And Manasseh prayed. And this is where the apocryphal text comes in. He prayed, Lord Almighty, God of our ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all their righteous children, you made heaven and earth with all their beauty, you put limits on the sea by speaking. You closed the bottomless pit, sealed it by your powerful and glorious name. All things fear you and tremble in your presence. Because no one can endure the brightness of your glory. No one can resist the fury of your threat against sinners. But your promised mercies are beyond measure and imagination. Because you are the highest, Lord, kind, patient, and merciful, and you feel sorry over human troubles. You, Lord, according to your gentle grace, promised forgiveness to those who are sorry for their sins, and in your great mercy, you allowed sinners to turn from their sins and find healing. Therefore, God of those who do what is right, you didn't offer Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who never sinned against you. You didn't offer them a chance to change their hearts and lives, but you offer me, the sinner, the chance to change my heart and life. Because my sins outnumber the grains of sand by the sea. My sins are many. They are many. And I'm not worthy to look up gaze into heaven because of my sins. Now, Lord, I suffer justly. I deserve the troubles I encounter, and already I'm caught in a trap. I'm held down by iron chains so that I can't lift my head because of my sins. There's no relief for me because I made you angry, doing wrong in front of your face, setting up false gods and committing offenses. And now I bow down before you from deep within my heart, begging for your kindness. I've sinned, Lord. I've sinned, and I know what I've done, the laws I've broken. And I'm praying, I'm begging, forgive me, 
Lord, forgive me. Don't destroy me along with my sins. Don't keep my bad deeds in your memory forever. Don't sentence me to the earth's depths, for you are the God of those who turn from their sins. In me, you'll show how kind you are, although I'm not worthy. And you'll save me according to your great mercy. And I'll praise you continuously all the days of my life because all of heaven's forces praise you and the glory is yours forever and always. Amen. And now back to Chronicles. And God was moved by this request. God listened to Manasseh's prayer and restored him to his rule in Jerusalem. And then Manasseh knew that the Lord was the true God. This is God's word to us. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Good and loving God, thank you again for this prayer. Thank you for poets. Thank you for creativity. And God, thank you for the stories that have been passed down. God, I pray whatever we would hear this morning would come from you and not from me. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm going to give you another... Garrett was a problem child story to, to walk with this morning. Um, and I want you to know I have evidence of the story that I'm about to share. So if, if you would like to see the uh, bus citation that I received in fifth grade from my principal, Mr. Austin, for uh, what he called uh, excessive mischievousness, I will be happy to show you that. My mother keeps it safe. It was the first thing that she showed Pastor Sarah when they met. It was like, hi, I'm Garrett's mom. Here's what he did in fifth grade. <laughs> Thanks, mom. <laughs> this is really helping my prospects. <laughs> um, no, so here, here, here's what happened. Does, does anyone remember the little thing? They're called like poppers. I'm looking at my 90s kids over here. You remember poppers? Okay. So poppers, if you don't know, they were just these little like plastic domes. If you were teachers at this time, you, you probably remember them. Um, but they were just these little plastic things that were like a dome, and what you could do is you could flip them inside out, and it set like a kind of, you know, internal timer, and then after, say, seven seconds or so, it would pop, and it would fly into the air. That's really all it did. Now, you could do certain things to the poppers to make them cooler. You could wet them, you know, with your lips. You could, um, you could buy bigger ones. You know, there, there were lots of things you could do to make them louder and fly higher. Well, the school administration decided that these were a distraction, because they were, and they couldn't be used in classrooms, and they couldn't be used on the bus. And um, there was one day we were riding home on the bus, and I, here's what I want you to know. I did have poppers on me, okay? I shouldn't have had poppers on me. The rule was you can't have them anywhere. I had them on me. I also want you to know I did not have my poppers out during this time. All my friends around me had their poppers out, and they were popping them up. We're sitting in the back of the bus. They're carrying on. I'm watching, and I'm sort of just caught up in all of this. And, and uh, the bus driver is getting increasingly an annoyed with us and asks us to put them away, reminds us of the rule. But, you know, we're fifth graders. <laughs> no one's listening. And <sighs> finally, the bus driver gets so upset and she claims that one of them hits her in the back of the head, 
causing her to almost wreck the bus, which is just the most dramatic thing I've ever heard because we're sitting in the very back of the bus and she's obviously driving at the front. And if you know poppers, I mean, like, you can make these things fly, but they're not going horizontally like that at a bus driver without hitting something. So she, I thought she was being ridiculous, making this up, and she's kind of grumpy anyway, you know? And, and so she stops the bus, she pulls over, and she actually turns the bus off, and she starts walking back through the aisles right to where me and my friends are sitting. And she says, hand them over, give them to us. And um, I was like, I'm not giving mine up because I have not been doing anything. And all my friends start talking back because they're fifth grade boys, and they're teetering on the edge of, of puberty and all these things, and they, you know, they're, they're not thinking straight. And so there's, there's a little bit of an exchange that happens, and finally, the bus driver gets so upset because she's not getting these poppers from the kids. And she looks at us, fifth graders, 11, 12 years old, and she says, this is exactly why you live on this side of town with every other piece of white trash. Oh, yeah. Every other piece of white trash in this city and then she goes on and I will never forget this she said and this is why you'll never amount to anything mm -hmm. <laughs> now I told you I didn't like going to church but I, I had some preacher in me already all right and I stood up and I was like oh no <laughs> you are not saying that and I I cannot tell you what I said to her because of where I'm standing and who I am <laughs> and what's going on right here. And I will tell you, you can read the bus citation, and I will tell you, the principal, Mr. Austin, he gave the PG version on the citation. If you want to hear the real version, you got to wait until I'm retired, okay? <laughs> but I will just tell you, there, there was an exchange of words, and I was really, really upset, and I got this bus citation, and in fact, I was told afterward for my excessive mischief that I could not ride the buses on the Mississippi bus school system uh, for the rest of my school career. I was, I was kicked off. I was not allowed to ride the buses anymore. <laughs> and um, and it, it's essentially because I told her what she said was wrong. And I, and I said a, a, a few other things. And, and Mr. Austin called me into the office and he wanted to hear my side of the story. But he didn't really want to hear my side of the story because he had already talked to the bus driver and basically had what he needed. And so he told me, he said, look, I, we're not going to do anything to you, but you do need to apologize to Mrs. Arms, the bus driver. And then I'm going to write you up, and that'll be the end of it. And I said, I'm not apologizing. <laughs> she called us white trash, and that, like, you don't say that. And also she said, we're not going to amount to anything. Like, how can you have someone talk to you like that, you know? And um, he didn't really care. He said, he said, look, if you don't say sorry, you're going to get a spanking. That's how old I am. And, and I said, fine. <laughs> Go for it. And I got a spanking for it. And, and you can see, he checked it on the bus citation. Garrett received a spanking for his excessive mischief. I didn't apologize, and I won't apologize, because I didn't think that our actions uh, warranted that. Maybe I shouldn't have said what I said, but there was a lot going on there. And, um, I got my punishment, I guess, though I don't know what I learned from it other than I don't like it when people <laughs> judge large groups of people based on where they live and how they look and how they behave.
And I felt like that bus driver should have told me sorry. And she should have told all my friends sorry. Because the stigma of poverty is huge and it follows you. And I don't think she got that. You may have similar stories to this, where maybe you were in a situation where you, you encountered maybe something similar. Maybe you didn't, you know, uh, cause excessive mischief on the bus when you were in fifth grade, but maybe you've been in a situation where um, you were asked to apologize and you didn't want to. Or maybe you've been in a situation where you needed an apology and, and you didn't get it. I think we've all been in some of these situations before. And Manasseh has too. When Manasseh takes over his father's reign, his father Hezekiah passes away when he's about 12, about the age of a fifth grader. And Manasseh begins to rule at the age of 12, and, and the writer of Chronicles like, goes out of their way to tell you that Manasseh did everything wrong that a king could do, go, do wrong. So just one by one, he did this which God said don't do. Manasseh did this which God said don't do. Manasseh did this which God said two times don't do. Manasseh did this which no one had ever done because you weren't supposed to do it. If you could do a kind of evil as a king over Israel, Manasseh did it. And he did it really, really well. And he does all of this evil 12 years old until a certain point in his life, and it leads to this invading army that comes in. And the army takes him, and we're told in the scripture that we read that they gather him by hooks, and they bind him in chains, and they carry him off into exile, where he's put into a prison, and he's essentially awaiting his fate. He doesn't know what's going to happen. But he does know that he's messed up. He does know that he's done wrong. He does know that it's his actions that have led him to that point. And he accepts that. And I want you to hear that because it's one thing to know that you did something wrong. It's another thing to get into the heart and to feel, I messed up. You know, And that's where Manasseh is, and he's in these chains, and he's rotting away in this prison, and he decides to pray. And, look, we don't know what he said, but I think the writer of this apocryphal text, you know, I think she did a great job of helping us imagine what maybe was said. And it's not about the specific words, it's about the weight and the emotion behind them. I think you get a sense reading the text that Manasseh really was sorry. And I think you get that sense because he's saying it was my responsibility. I got here because of me. He's not, he's not blaming God and saying, well, God, I started ruling when I was in fifth grade, man. What do you expect me to know? I don't know anything. I'm 12 years old. He doesn't do that. He, he, he doesn't say, well, look at the situation. I had to blah, 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 blah. He doesn't make any excuses. He just says... I messed up, and I know it, and I know I did this, and I know and I see my sins, and there's not anything I can do about that, but I do want to say sorry. And as he says it, he remembers that, oh yeah, this is the God of love. 
This is the God of forgiveness. This is the God of those who do right. Did you catch that in the text? The God of those who do right. And then later on, it's not just the God of those who do right, but it's the God of those who do right and the God of those who turn from their sins. So often we think of right as we do everything perfectly. We're decent. We are in order. We don't make any mistakes. But actually, those who do right are those who turn from their sins. Those who repent, those who, as Cynthia Bourgeau says, step into a larger mind and see the bigger picture. And this is precisely what Manasseh does when he recognizes his sins. And he's not saying all of this, I don't think, so that he can, you know, be lifted out of prison and and be restored to his throne and, and carry on with his life. I think it's just hitting him. And I think he's realizing, like, ah, my time might be up here. And, um... This is about the only thing I can do. And no matter what comes, at least I've made my peace with God. Now, what he maybe doesn't expect is that this is a merciful God, and um, he is restored to his throne. And so all of that time that the writer of Chronicles spent telling you how he literally did everything wrong that a king could do wrong, after the prayer, what ends up happening is everything that Manasseh had done wrong, he makes right afterward. And so he begins to live as if he has been forgiven. So all those false temples that he set up, he has them knocked down. All those things that he did in the temple he shouldn't have done, he has those removed. All those people that he hurt unjustly, he has them restored. Everything that he does changes. It's redeemed. It's brought back. And so while he says sorry in that prayer, His actions show you exactly how much he meant it. And I think it's such a beautiful story, and I think we need more stories like that of powerful people doing that. Can you think of one powerful person in this world that ever said sorry about anything? Anybody? Who? No? (laughs) I mean... Think, it's, it's very rare. I'm not saying it's never happened, but it's very, very rare. And I think we need more stories like that because we live in a culture that's almost allergic to taking on any kind of responsibility for anything. I think sometimes because we're protecting our egos, you know? We're so afraid. And I, I'm including myself in that, y'all. So I didn't say sorry to the bus driver. I do want to tell you a story where I did say sorry and I did mean it, and I'm still working on my actions from it. I do have permission to tell this story, and uh, if you want to check the details and the facts with uh, your other pastor, please feel free. Um, Sarah and I moved into this house in Montana, and um, it was what is called a fixer-upper, all right? And it was... um, Boy, was it something else. Uh, we had to redo, like, all the wood floors. We, Sarah was telling people earlier that she painted the ceiling, like, every crack in the ceiling she went through. And, you know, we, we did all these things. One of the things that we did was we remodeled the kitchen because it, it was just totally unusable. And we ended up salvaging this kitchen island. And I thought it would be a great idea and a really inexpensive idea to put a concrete countertop 
on there. Now, I wasn't going to pour a concrete countertop because it would be too heavy for the structure. So I watched a few YouTube videos, and I got you know enough knowledge to be dangerous with concrete. And I thought, oh, I can do like a skim coat on top, and it'll have a concrete effect, and that'll be great. And it was, it was a really inexpensive solution to help us with this kitchen. So I practiced on a few sections of it, and I think I got really good, and I, I was really confident in my abilities. And um, the, the time came when I was going to mix the concrete, and then I was going to pour it, and I asked Sarah to be there to help. And I told her, I said, look, I can't mix this concrete. Um, it, it needs to be a thicker mix because I was actually doing a little bit of the backsplash, and I needed the concrete to set vertically. So it had to be thick. And then I was going on the sides, and I needed tight lines, and you know, I. I tend to be kind of a perfectionist about these things. And so I, I told her, I said, I'm going to mix the mud thick, and we're going to have to go quick, so be here. Some of you that are uh, partnered in life already know where this is going. I mixed the mud, and I did a great job of not making it too soupy, but I made it way too thick, which means it was setting much faster than I anticipated. And I couldn't, I couldn't move it with my trowel or any of my tools, and so I started panicking. And I'm panicking because I didn't prepare enough. I'm panicking because I feel like I'm ruining the kitchen, and I feel like I'm ruining all of this hard work that we did, and so I start to get impatient. And when I get impatient, I get snappy. And when I get snappy, my tone changes. You've been there. You've moved furniture with someone. <laughs> You've done a project with someone, right? Words were exchanged. It was not a good night in the Logeman-Mostowski household, and afterward, we had to have a come-to-Jesus moment <laughs> over these concrete countertops, <laughs> which turned out beautiful, by the way. <laughs> we, uh, we, we remedied it. But I went to Sarah, and I said to her, I, I just knew I messed up, just totally. Uh, no excuses, don't know what happened. I mean, I can explain it. I think... I, I sort of blame my father a little bit because I, you know, I come from a long line of impatient men. And um, I told her that, and I just said, but I, I'm sorry, and I won't let it happen again. And she said, and this is maybe the worst part, she said, it's okay. I still love you. Let's make sure that doesn't happen again. Oh. <laughs> the receiving of the forgiveness is sometimes easy because it's like, oh, she forgives me. We're going back to normal. But that next line... Let's make sure that doesn't happen again. It haunts you. <laughs> so every time we move furniture, every time we have a house project, I am reminded of the concrete countertops. I'm reminded of my impatience. I'm reminded of the promise that I made to do better, to act as if I had been forgiven already. And I try. I try to. I'm not saying I'm perfect. I know, I know I'm not perfect at it. But this is sort of where I took the phrase sinners in the hands of a merciful God, which I did borrow from, from someone who commented on this text. But sinners in the hands of a merciful God is a, is a play on Jonathan Edwards' uh, famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And, you know, we're, we were so scared of that culturally for so long, that sermon that, you know, God is going to send you to hell if you do these bad things. And I would say it might be worse to be forgiven and then have to correct your actions later because it's that much more difficult. You gotta go inside yourself. 
You've got to ask hard questions about your behavior. You have to become aware of things that you probably don't want to become aware of in yourself. And that's precisely the path that Manasseh has to take. He gets his moment to say sorry. And God says, yeah, I forgive you. Let's make sure it doesn't happen again. And then step by step, he's offered the chance to show just how sorry he is through his actions. I hope we can all glean something from this. I hope we can all think about times when we've said sorry and we've needed to, times when we've been apologized to, all of that. But I hope more than anything we know that we do serve a merciful and loving God. The God of those who do right, the God of those who turn from their sins, the God of forgiveness. And so often I think we think of forgiveness as a single moment when in fact it's this very, very long process. So this morning the invitation is to think about times you've said sorry, times when we've needed to say sorry, and maybe times too when you've been given the opportunity again, the grace to put that sorry into practice. Let's pray. Good and loving God, thank you for the story of Manasseh. Thank you for his willingness to repent and then to follow it up with action. God, I pray you would give us all that kind of grace. In Jesus' name, amen.